I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is Victoria Kirillov, a family financial mediator and holistic wealth consultant. Our conversation today is being recorded by Zoom. Victoria Kirillov is a family financial mediator and holistic wealth consultant. Victoria began her career in personal finance after her father had an untimely stroke and forced her into the role of chief decision maker for the family. Having lived through poor financial planning, she dedicated her life to studying the science of money and behavioral psychology. In her pursuit of knowledge, Victoria has achieved eight different financial licenses and designations. Currently, Victoria spends her time helping others make data-driven decisions while navigating the financial impact of life. Victoria, welcome to the show. Good morning, Stuart. Thank you so much for having me. You have so many stories and such an intriguing background to share. So I'm really excited to get into that. But I think it's really important just before we get to that context of your life and, and all those stories, I wanted to get a sense of where your work life is at now before we talk about that journey. Uh, And so could you give us the basic version, um, the 101 introduction, as it were, of what you do now? You know, what is a financial mediator? What what is a holistic wealth consultant? A family financial mediator is someone who is able to take highly complicated life situations, um, apply the lifestyle metrics to that, and then help the family work through um, the event that ranges the gamut from divorce to estate planning and really making sure uh, siblings stay uh, on friendly terms after mom and dad are gone. It is my life's work and it is so impactful to see um, this little girl from Nebraska being able to really help others uh, live their best life and not be afraid of money. Um, Money is so many things to all of us. We put all of our hopes, dreams, um, but also our fears and worries, and we project it onto money. And it makes our lives even more complicated. So keep in mind, most people do not have a working financial knowledge base. So when major life events happen, they become paralyzed to act. Because money is so, it's like that uh, elephant in the room that they're unaware of how, how it will impact their lives. So they elect to either put their head in the sand and not take any action or continue doing what they're doing, which results in the same actions, which led to the problem. To quote you, the phrase you used was um, this little girl from Nebraska. And so that's going to be my segue then. Um, So this is the work you do, and we'll unpack that a lot more. But this is my segue then into asking you, where did this all begin? And maybe the best place to start there is is with your background. So, So let's start with your family. Tell us about your father. 
my dad. Oh my gosh. I could talk about him for hours. Um, I really feel so blessed in life to have had Victor Kurloff as my father. Um, he is a brilliant man. He is a Russian nuclear engineer with a master's in heat transfer. He's 85 years old or about, about that. <laughs> and um, he worked for the government during the Cold War. He was recruited by the CIA uh, right out of the University of Michigan. He was at Ann Arbor. They picked him up because he was absolutely revolutionary when it came to uh, radar and the radar cross sections. And he was working on Gosh, a top secret project. I don't know <laughs> what it exactly was, but I know it was incredibly uh, classified. So they picked him up and he began to just bounce around the different intelligence and defense agencies, really using his skill set to uh, protect the homeland. He worked on a variety of projects. Uh, one of my favorites is the SR 71 Blackbird, which is down at the SAC Museum. He designed the radar, uh, the ogives, which uh, is the radar crosshair section. So when you're looking to create stealth technology, you need to be able to uh, dissipate uh, any radar that is shot at the bird. So essentially what an ogive is, um, it's all of these different angles that scatter the beam. You know, when you go to the SAC museum with him, he just says, kid, I'm so old. All of these top secret projects are now in a museum. <laughs> you mentioned he was a Russian nuclear engineer. I'm assuming he immigrated to America at some point. Well, my grandparents immigrated uh, to Detroit and he was born here. Um, so I think that led to some interesting intelligence work as well. Um, my grandfather was a frequent at the Red Star Cafe, and that caused a lot of problems for dear old dad. Um, they're, they're like, hey, what's your father doing? Is he, uh, you know, what side is he on? So he really lent his skill set to this country, and I feel lived the epitome of the American dream. Um, after he bounced around the intelligence agencies, he then moved to the private sector um, and designed a dynamic brake grid, which is a fancy way of saying train brakes. You wouldn't imagine, but um, there is so much load that occurs um, when you're slowing a train down that it will actually um, create molten metal. It was being ejected out of the top uh, where the airflow is um, situated. So it was causing road fires. And my dad comes along and he's like, hey, I know how to solve this. So he then um, worked with all of the different railroads and mining companies to really um, get his product out there. And that led him to my mom. So give us a little background before she, she met your father, Victor. So my mom, she is a nurse and also an opera singer. They, uh, <laughs> they go hand in hand, right? <laughs> oh, goodness. She really, I think, was at the right place at the right time when she fell in love with my dad. Um, North Platte is where she's from, and they have one of the largest diesel shops that uh, Union Pacific has. So my father walked in one day to the restaurant she was a hostess at, and he decided to take a little takeout with him. And that was the beginning of the Kurloff family. So tell us about then your childhood. Did it start in North Platte or elsewhere? 
So my dad needed to be close to the engineering uh, library. So my mom and father located to Lincoln and that's where I was raised. But um, I had a very untraditional upbringing. We spent about six months on the road with my dad every single year, um, looking at my attendance records from school. I'm like, wow, <laughs> I don't know if you would get away with that anymore, but he taught me so much. He is an entrepreneur and businessman. So he was very um, invested in my future and wanted to make sure that I would be able to take on the family mantle. So um, we just went along and he taught me everything. Life is a winding road. No telling where it goes. Driving through days and nights. Won't stop for traffic lights And I I really wanna know, really wanna know If I Let me figure out where the road goes Even if I'm falling down I will keep on searching for my highs Say I lost my mind I will keep on holding my head high Even if the sky is falling down I'm pretty sure, given what you've just described, that there are many stories that come to your mind that illustrate what sounds to some degree like a, an unusual childhood. So I, w I wonder if you might share just some of those stories that maybe give us a flavor of you know, what childhood was like for you. Oh, gosh. Wow. Um, it was so bizarre in some ways. So my dad was interested in me being a woman um, that could take care of herself regardless of the situation I was in. So he would throw me in uh, with his meetings. So I was, gosh, uh, you know, 50 pounds soaking wet. And, and I was in these big board meetings with him and all of these mind bosses and he would give me a role to play. So I would either have to hand out the reports or I would, as then I, when I got older, I would then help with parts of the presentation. And I, I like to think I was his secret weapon. <laughs> so my first memory of being in a boardroom with him was when I was five. Um, curl-offs, we really value what's in your mind. And, you know, I don't think I had a traditional childhood in the sense there was a lot of uh, frivolous behavior. Uh, it was very much so a Russian childhood where you are put on this earth to do something amazing. Let's get started today. Were you aware of that at the time? Like, did you look around you when you were in your, you know, early childhood and then in your teens and think to yourself, hold on, um, all these other people, all my friends around me are, are, are doing, as you say, these frivolous things. They're playing, they're, you know, just kind of growing up. I'm wondering if you were aware of that at the time, or if you look back now and just think, oh boy, I can see that I missed out on a childhood. I definitely have had to look back. Um, in the middle of it, I had no idea that life would be any different. Um, it was only until my dad's stroke that I really examined my life. Um, Victor is absolutely brilliant. And when he gives you a plan, you execute it and you don't ask questions. 
I like to think that I've always had a high amount of play in my life. So while I might do very serious work, I still really enjoy it. And I don't get too bogged down in, um, in, it all, in all of it. I just focus on bringing as much positivity and joy into whatever I'm doing. And I find that that enables me to really fully actualize myself. It sounds as if you see a lot of a lot of your father in yourself, but also um, a lot of how your father shaped who you are today. Um, what is it that you perhaps see from your mother that maybe shaped you or um, in, informed how you grew up? Oh man, my mom is absolutely wild when it comes to like outdoor activities. So we would go on these Amazon woman vacations and oh my gosh, some of the things that I look back on now, I can't believe we did uh, and how young I was. And so it started pretty much right away as well. Um, you know, we would go skiing all the time and uh, my dad and her would, they had this cute little routine down and she was so dedicated to me being able to handle myself on the slope that I would go to ski school and um, I couldn't even walk, but here I was going to ski school. And then they're like, okay, kid, now you got to learn to herringbone up the mountain. She just was always encouraging me to, to get in the mud and to really live that pioneer lifestyle. Um, We have horses and that is a strong connection between us. So we would take the horses out, um, all across the Midwest um, and do cow work, but also we went on crazy trail rides, kind of like the man from Snowy River, where the only way down the mountain was your horse to really sit like a dog and just slide down. I spent most of my time viewing mentioned that your father had a stroke. I understand that that was a sort of pivotal moment in your sort of awareness of the world and also your um, the, the demands that the world was going to place upon you. And so would you mind just sharing some context, um, sort of what, what was the family context at the time, and then what happened around the stroke? Oh, man. 
the stroke was really the linchpin. And once it was pulled, everything came tumbling down. Um, my dad, having the brilliant mind, uh, created a highly complicated life. Um, and at that point, I had, um, I had left college because he had asked me to come work for him at Victor, Engineer Victor Engineering and Jules Applications. So our product was a high voltage resistance module, which is a fancy way of uh, sizing down the electrical load from the rest of the train to the cabin uh, with and making sure the voltage is low enough so you don't blow all of the sensitive equipment. So I spent my early twenties on the road with him being his right hand woman. Um, it was just a phenomenal experience and really the capstone of my education. I had no idea though, that when he went in for heart surgery, he wouldn't be coming back out the same way. So um, that day, everything changed. It was absolutely devastating to everyone. Um, he's still with us, but he has aphasia and he's been dramatically reduced in his capacity. So, um, he was in a, placed in a medical induced coma for a month after that, uh, the event at the heart hospital. And I, I just remember after the doctor left the, the room, I went to the coffee machine and I just drank about six cup of, cups of coffee and thought, okay, this is it, daddy. You've been planning this moment all along and here it is. Um, he would often tell me, kid, I need to teach you everything now because I'm, I'm old and I'm going to die. Um, I didn't realize that there was something worse than death, though. And seeing my father slowly die in front of me has been the hardest thing I will ever do. And the only way I knew how to handle that was to work. So I got started. Um, he had had, he has a business out, well, he had a business in Pittsburgh and that was his main occupation, um, the dynamic brake grids. Uh, and then he also had our businesses. So I had to navigate all of that out. And I was so overwhelmed. I actually was 24 at the time. I thought I was a little older, but <laughs> there's some lost years in there. There was so much going on. So, um, I would just was a workaholic. And the, the one thing I kept coming back to was that this did not have to happen. Um, yes, the stroke probably, um, that couldn't have been controlled and contained, but the financial impact, man, that was so great. And actually when I was um, right about 10 years old, my dad was really interested in long-term care insurance. So like the good little child I was, uh, he asked me to write a report and I got, got it got after it. So I went and I researched the top three carriers on the marketplace on AOL. <laughs> I printed off my little report on our dot matrix printer. I sat down with our financial advisor and went over my findings with him. His response was incredibly dismissive. He stated, you guys have enough money. You can self-insure. Let's keep your money invested in the stock market. So we went with his advice. That's obviously on us, but we thought we had an expert we were working with and it just devastated my mom, um, you know, to have to deal with the finances on top of everything. Well, that was my job. So uh, not only was I managing the businesses, I was also figuring out 
the, the personal finance side. And, you know, thankfully my parents have resources, but man, <laughs> when you're having to rehabilitate someone from a stroke, it's incredibly expensive. And it got to the point where it was becoming dangerous for us to continue doing that, uh, to, you know, be throwing tens of thousands of dollars each month um, because my mom's 15 years younger than him. So she has long-term retirement concerns. And here I am, 24 years old, trying to figure out all of these different factors. And I was so angry at our advisor. I mean, I, I came to realize he didn't have an insurance license, so he wouldn't have had he wouldn't have made any money selling my product, my parents that long-term care product. And I just thought that was the most unethical and um, disgusting behavior. So after I um, completed my responsibilities for the family, I realized I could not continue in the business anymore. Um, my dad was the business and I was his COO and I was not going to become an engineer to live a, a life in his shadow. So I struck out on my own. And that's how I became a financial expert. So you decided that financial planning and wealth management was clearly something that needed to be your mm -hmm. pathway forward. And, and I think you've taken that into one or two really particular specialties. And, and I'm, we'll get to that in just a second. But um, so tell us about the moment when you decided that epiphany, um, when you decided that financial planning is the career that you wanted to pursue. And, and how did you go about that? So it's kind of weird because my first investor meeting occurred when I was three years old. My parents were in a REIT and um, I tagged along because that's what uh, Victor Jr. does. <laughs> so like immediately though, I, I was fascinated by everything that was going on and all these terms. And the one thing I kept realizing is that um, everyone was talking over my mom's head and it's not because she doesn't understand things. It's because they were purposefully complicating the matter and they did not know how to talk to a woman. So I became the financial translator in the, the relationship. Once my dad's stroke occurred, I realized that this was my calling. And in fact, I had almost taken a detour from it by working for my father. And really this was me going back to my roots in a weird way, his stroke opened that door. Um, unfortunately, it slammed another one shut, but it created this wonderful opportunity for me to really do good. Let me go for one day. Let me lose myself again. Give me something for the pain. Always trying to pretend that I'm not living just a lie. Broken heart and shattered lives. Let me go for one day. Let me lose myself. Oh, I knew how this would end. Oh, I knew. And I, I had um, a relationship between the time I was 20 to 30 that was not good. Um, my pretty much my entire, my early twenties was spent on the road and away. 
And so I really didn't have uh, that much contact with my partner except for the weekends. And when you kind of have a weekend relationship, you don't know everything about that person. Or you can say maybe they can conceal a lot more without you knowing. So um, we had continued uh, to grow and build. So I had bought us a home, a beautiful home that I dearly miss, but it became to be uh, the reason why I couldn't leave him. I, I loved the house and it was being used against me. And um, I realized that I needed to find a way out. And the best way for me to find a way out was to do what ended up being the first divorce impact analysis report. So I had used my skills uh, that I had picked up over the years. Um, I started at Mutual of Omaha and then I wound up at Morgan Stanley and now I have my own firm. But I pulled on all of my knowledge and I found the cost basis, which is the fancy way of saying the original cost of the assets we held together. I put together a few different settlement options. I sat down with Matt and we went over it. Um, he's an engineer, so everything had to be really thorough. Imagine that the nuclear daughter, or the nuclear engineer's daughter, falls in love with a mechanical engineer. <laughs> oh, goodness. I was able to extract myself from an increasingly abusive situation, and I was able to do so with remarkable ease. So my friends saw this occur and they started to ask me all these questions. And I realized that this was an even larger unserved market. So I became a certified divorce financial analyst and I have pursued that wholeheartedly in conjunction with being a holistic wealth consultant. Um, divorce is the ultimate form of financial planning. Um, you really need to know what all of the financial facts are so you can come up with uh, settlement options using real facts. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives. My guest today is Victoria Kirilov, a family financial mediator and holistic wealth consultant. You've had these traumatic experiences that have 
kept you and pushed you towards that this pathway that you're on uh, this seems incredibly tough work is it is it as tough as it sounds well keep in mind i have buried my grandmother i have managed my father's stroke and his rehabilitation exited out of companies have my own business oh and by the way i left an abusive man so my ability to withstand trauma is much higher than most. So <laughs> I don't know. I know it seems like it's tough work, but to me, it's just more problem solving. I love your, you know, your energy and your spirit and, you know, this fortitude and resilience that you're demonstrating um, and sharing. How is it for your clients? I would imagine that your clients probably feel fairly desperate. Um, so share a little bit about who your clients are and then perhaps how you help them transition from the person that first turns up at your door to the people that leave once you've um, you know, helped them on their way. Oh, Stuart, it is so impactful. And it's the reason why I wake up at 4.30 in the morning ready to go, you know, <laughs> uh, because you can see the real good that uh, your work creates. So I do a lot of work with women, um, especially high net worth women that have maybe not had the strongest role in managing the money and they've turned that over to their husbands. And now um, they need to figure out everything. So it is so meaningful because I'm able to not only extract them from bad marriages, but to do so while preserving the relationship, which is important if you have kids, but also we keep family matters private by staying out of the court as much as possible. And with that, you're able to really help them conserve resources for their next chapter. Um, divorce does not have to be as traumatic as it is portrayed in the media. Um, it is based off of the professionals you have working on the case if they are not aligned, if they are not collaborative players, well, you are headed towards litigation and that's all out war. So by really helping, um, helping create facts and using that to replace the fear, that really takes someone who is emotionally devastated and like pulls them right back on their feet. So while I know it might sound like what I do is emotionally charged, Really, when you focus on the finances, that is the business transaction of the relationship. And that takes care of all of the other phases. Um, divorce has four phases, the emotional, the social, the financial, and legal. Now, the emotional and social phase, that can be very challenging because you're dealing with not only your feelings, but also how your community uh, is perceiving you. So you're able to really exponentially increase the time frame by focusing on the finances. The biggest predictor of divorce is different money mentalities. Um, probably not the biggest surprise. It's kind of funny because for the first time in a lot of these couples, uh, like relationship life, they're sitting down to have uh, a frank financial discussion. And it just so happens to be when they're uncoupling. And if they would have been able to do that before, maybe the divorce wouldn't be happening. 
So that leads to the other branch of my business, the holistic wealth consulting. And that's really where I come in and help uh, as a family and financial mediator to, you know, help them figure out what their goals are, what their objectives um, are. And money is not the, the end game. It is simply the tool and the mechanism that you use to live your best life. I've heard you say to me before um, that money is either a tool or a drug. Mm -hmm. How does that fit into what you're describing? Oh, man. Money is a great way to numb yourself. Um, And this is where relationships get complicated because men, um, there's been multiple studies that state men actually are bigger spenders, but women emotionally spend. So they'll go out and shop, but they won't spend as much when they shop compared to when a man goes out and shops, he'll go buy, you know, a $5,000 little car that nobody really needs, but it's a lot of fun to drive. (laughs) While a woman, she'll go out and spend 50 bucks on a pair of shoes and get joy out of it. But having those different mentalities around money can create a lot of friction and derision. So it's really important that you have someone like myself that can see both sides and bring the couple on board together. Sometimes that's during the marriage. Sometimes that's when it's crumbling. It feels as if maybe it's it's the emotional context of this that perhaps is, is a key difference between that and um, what might be seen as your holistic wealth management work for high wealth individuals and families. Is that accurate or, or are there other key challenges or, or distinctions between the sort of family divorce side of things and other financial planning? Yes, definitely the emotions. Um, But with divorce, there is this urgency that you don't have um, in traditional wealth management. And, um, you know, when I first got into the practice, I was amazed at uh, all of the documents they so readily gave me. (laughs) Um, As a financial advisor, I was, you know, begging clients to give me their full financial picture. But now um, when you're going through a divorce, it's a part of the discovery process to have full financial transparency. Um, The divorce work is so similar to everything else. It's just at a different life stage. How are you growing your business? You know, you're you're an entrepreneur, you're self-employed, you have your own company. How do you go about growing the business side of things? Um, So I really am involved in the community, but once COVID happened, that was no longer an option. So I got on social media and being, um, being an intelligent officer's daughter, well, I never was active on it before because I realized the data implications and really what people are doing is letting big tech follow you and trace you and really monetize every ounce of your life. So I didn't have any social footprint. In fact, when I looked at my Facebook, it was uh, like my my GPA post when I graduated. And then there was nothing <laughs> they're like, Victoria, you're never on here. I'm like, yeah, that's true. But now that has to change. So um, I'm active on social media, on Facebook, on LinkedIn and Instagram. Um, but I use the internet as a tool. 
there are so many people in this world. You just need to be able to connect with the same person that's looking for you or the person that's looking for you. The internet has enabled me to really expand my reach. Um, I now have a very active practice out in California. Um, my profession as a certified divorce financial analyst is, gosh, has only been created within the last 20 years. I've had to go to essentially the, the homeland. I have to go back to California where the profession is established to really uh, grow my skill set. And then I take what I learn and apply it to, to uh, my Nebraska practice. mentioned earlier the degree of um, you know experience traumatic experience you've had and and then dealing with clients often in a situation where they're feeling under you know, emotional and psychological mm-hmm. distress um, and in some ways I feel like you kind of made light of it you said you could handle it because you know you've had all these experiences but there's one more thing that you've told me before and I don't know the degree to which you uh, feel like talking about it but you told me that at age 12 you were diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis oh yeah so I don't know if you feel comfortable sharing that, but if you do, could you just tell us what is rheumatoid arthritis to start with? Well, um, I didn't have a normal childhood and I had a lot of responsibility. So rheumatoid arthritis, they don't know the direct cause, but um, I believe it's through stress um, and dysregulation within the body. So uh, there's so much dysregulation and your immune system is an overdrive that um, it attacks your joints. So it, um, it's an incredibly debilitating disease. Um, I am so lucky because uh, medical technology has enabled me to preserve my joints. But when you look not even 20 or 30 years ago, people's joints were destroyed. They were in wheelchairs. And I was damned determined for that not to be me. Um, <laughs> and I, I think probably my resiliency comes from that. Um, you know, there are days when I have to fight to get out of bed and I look healthy. I look, you know, I, I do spin, I do yoga, I do all of these things. Well, that's because I, I need to, my body requires me to take care of it now. So if I don't do those things, uh, I'm back where I started, which is in a lot of pain and unable to do simple tasks. So um, rheumatoid arthritis is uh, my silent partner. But since diagnosis for at least two thirds of your life, you've been um, 
living with this silent partner, how has that impacted your life? Um, in what ways has it perhaps spurred you or given you some positive perspectives and, and how has it hindered you? I refuse to quit. And it's because I have to fight my body. I have to fight to open the door sometimes. My fingers don't work. They're so swollen. I really have had to overcome everything. Uh, in my early 20s, not only was I doing all these business things, but I also couldn't eat. Um, I had severe joint issues in my jaw. They wanted to do a bilateral jaw joint replacement surgery at Mayo Clinic. And um, <laughs> yeah, it proved to not be the right choice for me. And I am so glad that I was able to advocate for myself, but it really taught me early on that you are responsible for you, no one else. And if you cannot go after something with ruthless abandon, you will not achieve it. That's almost like a double-edged sword though, because when I hit a brick wall, I'm like, okay, let's go, let's go even harder. Let's back up the truck and ram it again. <laughs> and sometimes that results in a concussion. So other times though, you get a breakthrough and um, you're able to really achieve your wildest dreams. As I started this session, I'm just a little Nebraska girl. I just have believed in myself, regardless of what I was facing regardless of the challenges or the trauma that I was encountering, I knew in my heart, I'm a Kurloff and we overcome everything. I don't cross my T's. I don't dot my eyes. I won't say pretty, please. I think it says more about me that I find that both inspiring and also dauntingly intimidating. <laughs> we just talked about this ruthless abandon, and it sounds as if you live life full on. What is it that you do? What is it that you intentionally practice where you can each day, as you say, get up at 4.30 and feel as if um, you are a well person? Uh, you know, spiritually fulfilled. Um, how are you taking care of yourself? So this has probably been the hardest thing for me to learn. Um, when you are faced with so many challenges early on in life, it, you don't realize what a self-care routine is. So I have had to painstakingly learn that process. Um, now I do media, uh, meditation every morning. I am big into heart rate variability. Essentially, that's just a, a way of saying breath work. So um, I do, I, I go to spin class every day. Either I go to Lotus or I go to Hot Works. And Hot Works is a little intense, <laughs> keeping with the theme. <laughs> but it is a, a sauna, an infrared sauna. And there's a spin bike in there. And I do uh, 30 minutes of breath work in there. And that just really helps 
regulate my brain and my body and keep that union strong. Um, I am placed in highly, well, in high conflict situations. Um, and if my breath goes, well, that means my, my computer needs to be rebooted because they're it's not getting enough uh, oxygen to functionally to function optimally. And my prefrontal cortex is not being properly engaged. So I need to take a step back and take care of myself. I think you also told me once that um, you do unplug from technology and um, you have a particular passion for uh, science fiction and fantasy novels. Oh yeah, that's my Sunday activity. So once Sunday rolls around, the phone is off. It's just me and my cat. And uh, we just read all day long. And my goal is to complete a book on Sundays. Probably one of the best things I, I do for myself. But I notice, um, well, I've grown my business on social media and through being connected all the time. And at the end of the week, I, I'll check my phone more often than I should be. And that's my indication that I need to slow down, turn it off, and go into nature. I can imagine that um, the needs of the kinds of clients you serve have maybe changed over time. And I, I'm wondering what sort of trends you're seeing in terms of um, financial planning world generally, but certainly around the client's needs, the demands of the world on them. Um, what sort of trends are, are you seeing? And especially given the pandemic, which I, I guess has kind of torn asunder all sorts of ways that we relate to money and financial stability? Well, what I have noticed is people are ready to live <laughs> in many, many ways. So sometimes that means uh, cracking open their inheritance uh, and you know everything they have saved and they're ready to actually enjoy life now. Um, but also that means living, leaving relationships that are several decades long. Um, I think the pandemic has really forced everyone to take stock of what they want out of life and to go after it. What does that mean for you? What, what have you realized because of the pandemic that there's something in life that you want to seize? I want to be the best version of myself. And that wasn't different before the pandemic, but it definitely is solidified through it. Um, I've always had to believe in myself and I carried that light within me and now I'm able to share it. And that really gets me going. So it's, it's such a weird world we live in, but what I, I feel like my job, I, um, is incredibly selfish. Uh, the joy I get out of helping people, um, being able to extract people from bad relationships and marriages while still preserving the relationship for the kids, to really see that in action and to see how the additional stress of COVID impacted those families, well, they needed to get started immediately. So, you know, I... My work is my life, but my life is my work. Would you mind uh, telling us how you sign off your emails and why you sign them off? That <laughs> I sign my emails off by uh, encourage everyone everyone to stay sassy. Um, 
And you know what? Life happens at a million miles an hour. And if you start to become a people pleaser or to subvert your real self, that's not a good recipe. I've done it. It has not resulted in a pleasant outcome for me. So by staying sassy, that just enables you to keep that light shining regardless of the storm blowing around you. My guest today has been Victoria Kiriloff, a family financial mediator and holistic wealth consultant. Uh, Victoria, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you so much, Stuart. This was absolutely wonderful. I think I said that right. <laughs> <laughs> the end of this week's show you can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at livesradioshow the music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey I'm your host Stuart Chittenden and this is Live's Radio Show and Podcast join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture community and more Thank you.